If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. And we're two political reporters here in D.C. who are going to do something radically different. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping up with the voters who will determine this fall's election in November. So we've got our gang still in studio today, and we thought we would run through what the heck happened last night. What the heck did just happen, Andrea? I don't know. Everyone's still alive? Everyone's still okay? (laughs) Very caffeinated. Barely. Barely. So what has Trump been saying about the election results last night? Well, in the, the surprise of nobody, he held a press conference on Wednesday in which he effectively declared victory and then most remarkably called out Republican lawmakers who lost in these suburban seats for not hugging him and not embracing him enough, not campaigning like a, a real Trumpy. I don't think, call me crazy, I don't think that there are a lot of Republican strategists out there working in the suburbs who thought, you know what our problem is? We didn't embrace the president closely enough right now. We saw the candidates that I supported achieve tremendous success last night. So on the other hand, you had some that decided to let's stay away. Carlos Cubella, Mike Kaufman. Too bad, Mike. Mia Love. I saw Mia Love. She'd call me all the time to help her, but Mia Love gave me no love. So we've got Katie Glick joining us from New York in studio. She covers Republicans from McClatchy. Great to be back. And Alex Forty, our usual, who covers Democrats from McClatchy. I'm here barely, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm like at running at like 50% right now. There's like a combination of DayQuil, NyQuil, and caffeine running through my system. And just a little bit of the bourbon that we had at the end of the night last night. Half speed Alex will still do. <laughs> it's like low power mode on your phone. It's like I'm at low power mode. That's exactly it. Yes. So let's start off with the big question. Did Democrats do well last night? Kind of a hard question to answer, right? I mean, um, look, I, I think the, the, the simplest answer is yes. So on the Senate side, Republicans picked up three seats. On the House side, Democrats' own tally as of Wednesday morning has them picking up 32. That expands a majority for Republicans in the Senate, but flips the House into Democrats' control. By a decent margin, you know, and, and, and 32 seats, if that in fact is the floor and that number goes up by a few, you know, if they say win about 35 seats, that's pretty in line with a lot of predictions. And I think if, certainly if you had told Democrats last year that they win 35 seats, they'd have been ecstatic. If you had told them even a couple months ago that they won 35 seats, I think they'd still be ec- ecstatic. So in the House, it certainly looks like a good result. The The Senate, uh, a different story. And the governor is really more than any, you know, kind of a mixed result. And lots of Republicans up in 2020 in the Senate, but those seats might be gone for a long time for the Democratic Party. Right. Being able to take control of a House majority and do so with some room to spare is an enormous accomplishment. You know, it's easy to get lost now that we've gone through this entire tumultuous cycle, but this was never a given for Democrats. Democrats knew that really most of the cycle, in fact, were really some of their leading strategists were skeptical that they could take a House majority because the, the, the majority making seat was still just awfully Republican. You know, I mean, this was this wasn't a case of just having to win over Democratic voters to get to a majority. Right. So, look, that I, I think that is the, the main takeaway. But if, if you take a step back and you look across the map, there were some real setbacks last night, Katie. I mean, let's start in Florida was really a a body blow to the party. Sure. So I would even take a step back further, just a sort of Mm 30,000-foot view here. It seems that we learned last night that the 2016 election was less an aberration than it was the start of a major political realignment. 
you know, last night we saw on the Senate, you know, states that supported Donald Trump in 2016, very much still on board with Donald Trump in 2018. But the kinds of congressional districts where Trump had problems in 2016, even those sort of moderate, well-educated, affluent suburban enclaves, even if in 2016 Republicans were able to hold on, voters drew a distinction between the top of the ticket and their Republican member in 2016, those distinctions went away last night and Republicans had major, major problems. So the Republican problems that we saw surface in 2016 got worse and uh, the, their strengths uh, that, that Trump was able to highlight in 2016 uh, sort of deepened. Two parts of that. I mean, one, we, we kind of take it for granted that Trump's toxicity in the suburbs would transfer down ballot at this point, because it certainly did for the Comstock's accomplice. That wasn't the case in 2016. So right. if you were you were asking probably at the out- onset of this election, would Trump finally rebrand the party in all parts of the country? And the answer is unquestionably yes. But there was this odd sense of deja vu watching the election returns last night in the Senate, where all of a sudden, particularly in rural America and say like the Indiana Senate race, where the Democrat just got annihilated. Joe Donnelly, people saw this as a toss-up race. I mean, he got crushed, you know, and I was emailing back and forth with a Senate Democratic strategist last night who was saying, you know, they hit their targets in a lot of suburban seats. You know, their numbers look good, but in in, in places that don't have a a lot of people necessarily, or or people are more spread out, I should say, they just got annihilated. And and importantly, I think the polling didn't pick it up. Yes. Um, which is something I think we're going to be talking about a lot the next uh, couple of months or even really the next two years, whether or not there's a better way to measure this, because it felt like particularly in the Senate races, Democrats just met the, the polling just missed across the board. Republican candidates were, were definitely stronger. Yeah, I was talking with a Republican strategist last night who said that he's very concerned about sort of the state of polling and that, you know, especially with these sort of Obama-Trump voters, there may just well be a segment of the population that does not feel comfortable talking with pollsters, does not feel comfortable talking with the media about their plans to vote, whether that's because they would like to see folks get it wrong, um, you know, because there is certainly some some skepticism of the media of pollsters among some of those voters, or if it's because you know they may just not want to go public with their views. It did seem that there were some systematic misses of w- what those voters were planning on doing. Um, but Alex, you know, you and I have spent the last, gosh, month and a half working nonstop on non-stop. this. Nonstop. Nonstop. <laughs> I talked to Alex and our colleague Adam Wolner more. Friend of the podcast. Friend Adam of the Walner. podcast, absolutely. Um, much more in the last two weeks than I have spoken to my husband in doing this sort of deep dive behind the scenes story of how Republicans lost the House. And, uh, you know, one interesting thing that top Democratic strategists said to us was that Trump being out there on the campaign trail pushed everyone back to their 2016 corners. And that was a benefit for Republicans in the Senate, where so many states uh, in play were states where Trump won in 2016. But in um, some of these contested House races where, you know, Hillary Clinton was successful in 2016 and Republicans had managed to hold on last time around. This time, it just was much more challenging. By the time you're listening to this, maybe the results will have changed. But as it is, you know, it looks like that Claire McCaskill lost, Joe Donnelly lost, Bill Nelson is asking for a recount right now, but he seems like certainly an underdog at this point. You know, Democrats, look, some Democratic senators did have success. Joe Manchin, 
John Tester looks good right now. Jackie Rosen in Nevada, which, my goodness, has just got to be the top performing state for Democrats right now, repeating the success that they had in 2016. But one of the things that grabs me, though, is, you know, even some of the races that we haven't talked about, really, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, for instance, or maybe Debbie Stabenow in Michigan, mm-hmm. the margins there are, are, look, it's obviously a comfortable win. But they're not an overwhelming win, particularly, I think, Sherrod Brown. You know, look, Republicans won the governor's race in Ohio, and Sherrod Brown completely outspent his opponent, is seen as the perfect, ideal Democrat for that state. And last I checked, his margin was about six points, and it just makes you think. I mean, Ohio in particular is just in a much different place than it was eight years ago or ten years ago during Obama. President Obama won it twice. And, and I'm not sure how seriously Democrats are even going to compete there now, which is a pretty, pretty dramatic thing. You know, Andrea, the, the funny thing through all of this is that at the end of the day, maybe the Democratic Senate candidate who performed the best, at least relative to the, the degree of difficulty in his state, was, of course, Beto O'Rourke. What, the candidate who did the opposite of what National Democrats wanted him to do at, at almost every turn. So, so Not wanted him to do, but wanted their candidates to do. So Beto O'Rourke is going to get roughly like 48% of the vote or so, which is an amazing figure. Like, Let's not forget, this is still Texas. That's an amazing figure for a Democrat running statewide. Tell, tell us more about what lessons uh, it holds for other Democrats. The most interesting thing, if he had won that race, not just a Democrat, but a liberal Democrat in Texas, like a very unabashedly progressive campaign that engaged in the social issues that Democrats wanted their candidates not to talk about this cycle. They wanted them to be on on message with pocketbook things and health care. And, and there are certainly criticism of his campaign that if he had done more to like hammer Ted Cruz on health care with negative ads, maybe he would be a senator from Texas. But certainly the campaign that like captured the energy of the liberal base and turned out a lot of new voters that Republicans didn't think existed in Texas or, or didn't think would show up. Democrats had success in Texas last night, places further down the ballot. I mean, they were able to win in Texas 32 and Texas 7, which listeners will know is my home district. And I can't believe the place I grew up is now represented by a Democrat. Just to see how much the realignment has been. And a big uh, state Senate seat pickup in Tarrant County. Um, it's a state Senate seat held by Wendy Davis, then flipped to a, a Ted Cruz ally in Connie Burton and now flipped back last night. That was very surprising. Tarrant County is the largest urban conservative stronghold in the country. And and people really think that um, when Democrats crack that, they will be more to come in Texas. I mean, we almost had a shock, uh, I should say, really at the beginning of this morning, very early this morning, where Will Hurd... Like 3 a.m., because we were still (laughs) up and still on Twitter. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Maybe maybe not the smartest thing, but it's hard to come down from that uh, election day high. Um, You know, Will Hurd, it looks like, is going to win, but barely. And this is a seat that people had written off months ago. Uh, for Democrats. And so really, I mean, there there are positives in Texas for Democrats to take away from here, it seems. And you can argue both sides of that campaign a lot. Did did Beto O'Rourke spend $70 million as effectively as he could? Did he run the right type of campaign? His campaign would say the things that made him unique and the things that he didn't do are the things that people really liked about him. One person who's probably not super happy with Beto O'Rourke this morning is Gina Ortiz-Jones. He never would campaign with her. That's uh, He took the bipartisan road trip with Will Hurd to D.C., and then afterwards said, look, I've got to work with the guy. I'm not going to campaign against him. And then she wound up with a really close race. It's a fascinating and maybe a fascinating criticism of Beto O'Rourke that's going to emerge here. <laughs> and then, I think the there's lots of criticism bubbling up. And yet, like, reader emails from Texas this morning are like, God, the guy did so much better than other Texas Democrats. Like, why is everyone so hard on him? So, I mean, the, the, the kind of complete the idea of this feels like a split decision. You know, Democrats struggle in Florida, the ultimate bellwether. But they unseat. Scott Walker, 
um, in, in Wisconsin. You know, in Georgia, there was a lot of hope that Stacey Abrams could break through, become the first African-American woman to be a governor in U.S. history. She falls short, it looks like, and then, you know, they're able to win in Kansas, of all places. Win the governorship, your home state, Katie, Chris Kobach loses. And, and you know, in the, in the governor's seat, it, it just really does feel like a, a split decision. Yes, and, and very exciting. Note that Alex and I both come from uh, some of these uh, very targeted districts that, you know, longtime Republican strongholds that actually both flipped last night, Kansas 3 and Texas, Texas 7. seven. Yes, yeah. yes. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of fun to see, you know, your county uh, being parsed and, and, and talked about <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> it, it, it is, yes. it is. But, yes, certainly. And, you know, I was um, texting with, with another Republican source last night who was generally happy with the Senate but see some warning signs uh, in terms of what the House map looks like. And his takeaway was, you know, politics can be confusing sometimes. And, you know, it it was confusing last night a little bit because we did see Democratic margins, as you were just saying, in the Midwest, whether it was in Ohio or in Michigan or in some of these Obama-Trump districts that that Republicans ended up holding that suggest that the challenges that emerged there uh, in 2016 are deepening and, and maybe not going away. But then exactly, then you have Scott Walker in Wisconsin, and the, there's other signs elsewhere in the Midwest that the Democrats can, can um, in fact, continue to make inroads. So a lot of split decisions um, uh, and a lot going on here to unpack. So I want to give you all a chance. Uh, maybe this is how the sausage is made a little too much, but you guys had a great story last night. Um, Republicans already pointing fingers at each other before this thing is over, telling you who, whose fault it is in the House. But of course, that sort of story comes with a, a pre-write of Democrats and their concerns. And, <laughs> and I would like to give you the opportunity to unpack some of the great reporting that didn't make it out of there. What were the Democrats' concerns about the House headed into it? I thought the the thing that grabbed me the most was there was this concern that as much as they wanted to make this election about health care and taxes and spent hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads trying to make it, there was a concern that the larger media environment just didn't allow people to think about anything other than Trump. You know, that they can try to introduce this new information and make this fresh argument about something that people aren't hearing about in their day-to-day lives, but that Trump is so all-consuming and commands so much media attention that you, you, you couldn't avoid them. There was even frustration from Democrats uh, with the media. You know, we had talked with some Democrats who had received calls from cable news executives asking, why can't we get a Democratic lawmaker on, on our show? And he would explain to them, well, because you want to talk about Bob Mueller and you want to talk about Donald Trump. And you know what we want to talk about? We want to talk about health care <laughs> right now. And, and, and there was a frustration because usually political party makes their campaign about something. A lot of media coverage follows that. And they didn't see that this time around. And so there was a lot of frustration. And, um, you know, and, and that was it. I, I will say, I mean, by the end of the House race, it was hard to find a Democrat who wasn't very confident that they would win the majority. And as it turns out, they were right about that. So, you know, I, I don't want to lose focus. Look, I think there are certainly very, you know, it, it was bad returns in the Senate for Democrats, mixed results in the governor's races. But in the House, look, this was a, a good night uh, for the Democratic Party. It was a good night. It was not the greatest night that right. they could that's, have that's ever true. had. And It was um, not the best case scenario. You know, I think we could even have a debate about whether you know, you would consider this a tsunami, right? right. And, you know, in... Uh, well, we have our race to, to tell us, right? If it's if Paris in North Carolina, that's our tsunami <laughs> metric. <laughs> Which has not, as of this podcast, it has not officially been called that, that race in North Carolina, Nine Harris's 
who is the conservative Republican candidate running against Dan McCready, um, who is running very much as a moderate Democrat. Um, I, I think it's a difference of like 0.7 percent. I will personally with consider Harrison. that my metric for Democrat success. Over a year ago, well, on this and, show, and that's a race that had been described to us a long time ago by folks on, on both sides as a race that should not be in play unless a Democratic wave was coming. And as things stand, you know, it's very, very much in play. But the one thing that I would add about races like that, and that is a race I spent a bunch of time in, it's sort of suburban Charlotte area, moving out through more conservative rural areas, very much in play. You know, this was a district that, that Trump won by 12 percentage points in 2016, and it has swung back to be a difference of you know, maybe less than one percentage point between the Democrat and the Republican. And there's a lot to learn, actually, about that district, both certainly about the extent of the challenge for Republicans among moderate suburbanites, um, and, and that is a huge part of the reason that this race was so close, because the sort of uh, folks that, that, that fall into that category who live you know, in some of these moderate Charlotte neighborhoods, where I met them, I spent a, you know, a lot of time interviewing them, and uh, there were a lot of them that, in fact, were switching parties, but as a rebuke to Trump. But the flip side was you could also see on the ground a lot of conservative energy. And so as a lot of these moderates kind of revolted against the Republican Party, uh, in the home stretch, you did see conservatives kind of coming back home. And so that kind of helped keep this from being as disastrous a night for Republicans as it could have been. In Texas, we had every scenario. We had the moderate who ran from Trump and lost in Houston. And then we had like in the, the cities. And then we also had Sessions who like hugged him as closely as possible and had help from all sorts of Trump world and didn't help him either. Well, there seems to be like two kind of broad factors to me that really kept the Republicans in, in the House in particular mm-hmm. in the game. And, and you just nailed one of it, Katie, and you wrote a very prescient story right beforehand about how Republicans had closed the enthusiasm gap. And I mean, look, if you're listening to the show, we, we're talking about the enthusiasm gap all over the summer, you mm-hmm. know, and how Republicans really that this was their biggest concern. And the fact that they were able to solve it, whether it was something they did. Or in the age of Trump, it was something that was always going to inevitably come online because of the president's appeal and connection with his base. Look, it was enormously important, and, it has, and it's a huge explanation of why uh, things in the Senate went as well as they did for the GOP. I think you also have to say that the, the state of the country's economy, even as people do worry about health care costs and they're not really thrilled with the, the GOP tax bill, you know, I, I think that does keep help keep your losses down. You know, I mean, people aren't going to to panic and say, "Well, the economy is bad." And when the, when the economy is bad, there's no greater impulse than to throw the party at it in power out of office, right? And so, I think that was able in some of these cases. And, it, and it's strange because the House races, the the results don't always line up with what we expect. Despite it being a good night for Democrats, we talked on the show um, this week in our preview, we talked about how Pennsylvania won. The first district in Bucks County was going to be a real bellwether. And guess what? It was a tough night for the GOP in the House, but Brian Fitzpatrick won. um, And and by a couple of points, it looks like right now. And he is... I mean, you know, campaigns will always say, and this sounds so obvious, but you know, quote, candidates matter. He's a good example of that. In an election like this, where there is such a strong, defined national environment, it can be very, very hard for candidates, even with the most defined of personal brands, they have Carlos Corbello, for example, in uh, in the Miami area, to survive if, if the national environment's really moving against them. But um, Fitzpatrick actually is someone who does have a very defined um, brand. Yes. His family has a very defined brand in that district and actually was able to weather 
pretty tough national environment um, that, that took out others uh, like him. You know, and, and Democrats also felt it looks like, again, they're still counting results in California because mm-hmm. they like to take like a month to finish <laughs> their, their vote, calling, vote tallying. But, you know, Democrats might not have as much success in Orange County, another place we've talked about a lot. Doesn't look great for them in the 45th district or even the 39th district, which was an open seat. They really had, had hoped to win. At the same time, they were able to win in places, some of the big shocks to me. They were able to win the Charleston seat, uh, South Carolina won in the first district, which is a big shock. They were able to win the Staten Island House seat. Max Rose, a Amazing. Democratic candidate, defeats. And this, this is not an open race, folks. This is Dan Donovan, who had been the district attorney there, well-liked, had fended off a challenge from my, primary challenge from Michael Grimm. A huge shock. And then Oklahoma 5. Right. Of all places. I mean, this was, look, th- there were there were some enormous surprises on the House map that don't, and it doesn't make it all that easy to tell, kind of like a single coherent narrative about what happened. Right. Because Staten Island is so, Staten Island, the um, and speaking as, you know, our, our New York bureau chief here, um, <laughs> <laughs> traditionally um, been kind of the one Republican bastion of New York. It is a place where Donald Trump is beloved, where his personality and his style and that, that sort of bravado really resonates, even though there's lots of voters around the country who say, oh, I like his policies. I don't necessarily like how he communicates them. I don't love the tweets. On Staten Island, people like the tweets. People are very comfortable with his kind of, with with his style. But, fascinatingly, um, a Democrat who also has kind of a a brash style uh, was able to flip that seat. And, of course, the district includes parts of Brooklyn as well. But then you take a look at some of the districts in Virginia, for example, where, um, you know, we were talking with one Democrat who was nervous previously about a race in kind of suburban Richmond, who was saying, you know, a good candidate there in Abigail Spamberger, but, but you know, that district doesn't have an ounce of Democratic DNA. Um, and she was still able to flip it. And so you, it does make it harder to tell a really coherent narrative. But, um, but broadly speaking, it does look like the, the suburbs played, played a key role, plus some surprises. I can distinctly remember you being dispatched to Staten Island, Alex, in 2014? In 2014, yeah. And, and the idea in that, that area, like Katie said, is so perfectly suited really for for Donald Trump's demeanor as, as any as much as any place in New York City can the old be. Michael Grimm seat the old Michael Grimm seat um, and I just remember when that that result got called last night it was really the first big shock of many of many to come as it turned out along the lines of the enthusiasm gap we are now two elections in a row with a Supreme Court nominee in the balance what does that say do Democrats need to figure out how to use the courts better is it political motivator? They 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 do, <laughs> they do. I think what they need to hope is that as that Donald Trump or Republicans face an election in the age of Donald Trump, where a Supreme Court seat isn't at stake or there isn't a recently completed Supreme Court fight. I know. Well, Mitch McConnell's on the ballot in two years, so it's, we're gonna have to like shove one out the door if this is a close race. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my grand takeaway from that night is the like conflicts that you talk about in the process of a Supreme Court debate or like better talking about NFL protesters, like those are the things that seem to motivate people, not anything that Democrats wanted to talk about this year. Well, and no doubt that the Supreme Court fight motivated Republicans. Um, you know, and there's a debate over how much and in what places, but you know, we had talked with a lot of Republicans who told us about their internal polls that showed in late summer their candidates, at least uh, in the House, were trailing. And after the controversy surrounding the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, whatever you thought of it, and, and, and you know, people on both sides had very strong views, and, and, and it was an emotional moment. Um, but as it related to the conservative base, that really woke them up and energized them, and they were able to mobilize. Um, and um, the thinking went from from a lot of Republicans was that that's what got them paying attention. 
Republican and then the president sort of being out there rallying, um, you know, that, that helped them certainly in the Senate stay engaged and, and, and may have uh, saved them a couple uh, losses in the House as well. Well, I guess to be fair, it's both sides guessing it wrong. You had Democrats shut down the government over immigration issues, didn't wind up talking about them, put all their money on health care, didn't wind up being the, the thing it, that did it. Republicans gave away free money in the tax bill. That's a line out of your story. Didn't <laughs> seem to do it either. Right. The issues that motivated people were none of those things in this election. I would say the pre-existing conditions yep. at the end really seemed to, to, to move some votes and actually mm-hmm. maybe not just motivate, but persuade, um, mm-hmm. since there's a, still a little bit of persuading to be done. But look, this is a, our politics are defined by the culture war. Well, I suppose everyone can thank Texas for that lawsuit <laughs> on the pre-existing conditions. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you so much. So a heads up for you listeners, next week we are not going to have our regularly scheduled episode of Beyond the Bubble. Instead, starting on Monday, we are doing a week-long special series on the future of the Democratic Party. It's called The Democrats Way Back, and is going to explore all the themes that you can expect to hear about in the coming 2020 presidential primary, because yes, folks, it's already here. I know we're just talking about the midterms, but we're already transitioning to the, the presidential primary, and hopefully this podcast can brief you about what's what's to come. So before we leave, we also want to give a shout out to Jordan Marie Smith. She is shaking her head, but I promise you this is staying in the episode. This is her, her final episode here at Beyond the Bubble. She has been a tireless producer for us putting up with all of our BS. I'm speaking for myself, Andrew. Not, not, <laughs> not you. smart, cuts out the dumb things. Cuts out the dumb things. You guys would not believe how many dumb things never make how it to How many air. offensive things Alex says. Yeah, so many <laughs> offensive things. She saves us from ourselves. <laughs> uh, Jordan Marie Smith, it's been a pleasure working with you, and good luck at your next adventure at, uh, was it someplace, some newspaper? Andrew, help me out. What's it called? The Post? The Washington Post? Well, I remember Washington Post. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I get. <laughs> And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. week.